When you hear the phrase first-gen American, what comes to mind? Oscar Velasquez, a first-generation American, wants to enlighten your mind to everyday life as a first-gen in today's America. There is a perception in today's society, and Oscar is going to dive in and dissect the reality of being a first-gen. Join Oscar and his guests from all walks of life, discussing their trial and tribulations in today's America. Now your host, Oscar Velasquez. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of First Gen American. Today's guest, Famina Zaman, a 29-year-old Muslim, first-generation American woman born in New York and raised in Vermont. Her family comes from India, and she also has a background in Bangladesh and also a small diversity population uh, in between India and Myanmar, which is Truly interesting. So happy to have you on our show today. I know that uh, she's not in the studio right now, currently because of the pandemic where social distancing and cases are going up. So please be careful out there. Everybody protect yourselves, wear your mask, wash your hands. So she's phoned in right now via live. Famina, how are you? Hello? We're having technical difficulties right now. So how's everybody doing today? <clears throat> we see some people in the live chat. If you guys are watching us live, we're currently on Facebook Live forward slash First Gen American. Okay. Hi, Famina. Hi. Hey, welcome, welcome. What's up? I can hear, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you clear. Okay, great. I can hear you too. Perfect, perfect. I just did a little quick intro. Um, so glad that you can uh, join us today. I know that uh, you're currently social distancing and quarantining right now. I hope that you're feeling well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank well, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I, I just gave a little bit of background. Um, so you're currently uh, Muslim and also have uh, Indian parents and also Bangladesh. So they're from Bangladesh. Not India, but that subcontinent. Yes, correct. Oh, okay. And um, you also have uh, some background uh, from some family members in Myanmar. Is that correct? Or? Sorry, can you say that again? So you also, you also have some family members in Myanmar, Burma? No. So I guess what I was explaining was Bangladesh is geographically in the middle of India and Burma. Okay. So it's a really tiny country. A lot of folks think it's part of India, which mm-hmm. it was at one point. Okay. Um, but then when that subcontinent, so when Pakistan and India and Bangladesh um, separated, mm-hmm. it became three different countries. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So we were essentially one country. Yeah. <laughs> but then um, in 1971 was when Bangladesh became its own country. And and the reason I ask is because I actually have uh, my in-laws live in Myanmar. Uh, right now, oh, as we speak. So, mm-hmm. uh, Actually, right now, um, a lot of folks from the west of um, Burma are, um, there's unfortunately a genocide happening there, and they are actually seeking refuge in Bangladesh. Um, so that is something that is happening right now. So, Famina, I, w- I want to get right into it. Can uh, can you tell the, the folks that are listening a little bit about your background and, and what started um, your background here in the United States? while you were growing up? Yeah, sure. So I was born in um, Poughkeepsie, New York, about an hour and a half away from New York City. Um, Very soon after I was born, um, my dad got transferred for his job up to Burlington, Vermont, a city about 40,000, 50,000 people. And I grew up there um, in a little suburb of Burlington. Um, and I grew up there, and I went all the way through high school there, and then I left. Um, my dad, he came here in the 80s to um, do his master's degree, and then um, then he went back to Bangladesh, married my mom, and then she came here in 1990. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's me, a little bit about me growing up. It was really tough growing up in Vermont. It's like one of the whitest states in the U.S. And as a brown person, as a first-generation American, um, it was really tough not being able to see people like me, other people of color, any immigrant stories around me, um, besides my parents and, you know, a select few amount of my friends who identify as people of color. 
I would say that um, the work I do and my passion of activism has to do with my dad a lot. Um, my family always makes a joke that the reason why I'm interested in activism and politics is because of my dad. It's in my blood because of my dad. Because um, in 1971, like I said, when Bangladesh became their own sovereign country, um, they were basically fighting um, a war like to partition from Pakistan at the time. Yeah. And my dad was a young activist. And he really, really fought for Bangladesh, their sovereignty, their language, which was really important to them. And he did a lot of activist work. I graduated from high school in Vermont, and then I moved to Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, and then I've been there ever since. I'm still in Lowell. And, um, yeah, that's just, that's a little bit about me growing up. What, um, I mean, you know, moving into a, a new city, what, around what year was this when you moved to Vermont? When I moved to Vermont or when I moved to Lowell? When you moved to Vermont. Um, it was, oh boy, early 1992. I was still a baby. I wasn't even a year old yet. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and have you seen the diversity grow uh, within the years that you, before you moved? Yeah, yeah. Like, as you know, as I became a conscious um, kid and teenager, um, yes, I have. Um, I know Burlington, Vermont, and a few other little cities in Vermont actually are um, welcome a lot of refugees into the community. Um, not only the population, but, you know, infrastructure has built up a lot in Vermont. My town, I live in a suburb of um, Burlington. In my town itself, even while I was growing up, um, oh, most of the state comes to my town to go shopping, for example. So we have a big, a lot of big box stores, and even that has grown immensely. Mm -hmm. I would say since my childhood, yes, it has grown a lot. Um, people, people-wise, absolutely, yes. Well, you know, moving to a new city, what was the drive that's, that uh, helped you start fresh and uh, in a new city? And did you notice any culture shock between Vermont and, and Lowell, uh, Burlington and Lowell? Yeah, absolutely. So my drive, well, initially was, um, I was graduating from high school and I was just going to college in Lowell at UMass Lowell. Um, and I didn't have any like real intentions of staying here, <laughs> right. but, um, it, it, it was, it, it is such a great city. And initially when I did move here, yes, there was culture shock. Um, I was surrounded by so much whiteness in Vermont, yeah. not a lot of cultural diversity, um, and then Lowell is a really, really big immigrant city, um, about 50% people of color and or immigrants. Um, and one of the biggest, a few of the big, bigger um, ethnic groups are Cambodian Americans. They came here after their, um, the genocide they faced in the um, late 70s, early 80s. And then a lot of um, Latino folks um, from various different countries are here. So... Um, I definitely face culture shock as as in a good culture shock, right. where now I'm surrounded by more black and brown folks and mm -hmm. immigrants and people of color. So it, it was um, it was a lovely mm -hmm. culture shock. <laughs> You're no longer in a city, you know, standing out and then just looking looking for a familiar face or somebody of of a different race to be able to connect with or just have some type of common ground of um, you know being left out of essentially of being a part of a community it, it the transition makes it much easier when there's so much diversity and uh you know because you're you don't feel like you're left out right exactly yep so, exactly so you do you um you know with with your parents um arriving to this country and and you find value in that what would you say that uh has bettered your life for it yeah, um, I would definitely, there's there's a lot of things I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, one thing, for example, you know, recently, the selection. I was, you know, born and raised here, right. and I have the privilege, right, to be able to vote. Right. Um, you know, I've voted in various elections, you know, local elections, obviously presidential election too. Um, and, you know, although I did have, you know, a lot of, you know, kind of isolation up in Vermont. I'm still really grateful. Like I was still, you know, supported by my friends 
and my family up there. Um, you know, and, and I am grateful for them being here. I, I understand the the hardship that any immigrant, whatever country you come from, you know, that you go through learning a new culture, of potentially a new language, having mm-hmm. to completely uproot your whole family and what the life that you thought was now in a whole new place, right? Right. Um, and so I am incredibly thankful for both my parents, you know, sacrificing whatever it was back there, um, many of the things back there to come over here and then, you know, raise me. And now, you know, I have all these privileges of, you know, being a first generation American, being an American citizen. They are also, um, citizens too, but you know, I was born here. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's a whole different level of privilege. So, and I am pretty grateful for what they've sacrificed and what they've learned and what they've taught me, right, as I grow up. That's absolutely admirable. You know, the the one thing I, I was thinking about the other day is um, us as first-gen Americans, we don't really have a childhood. Our parents, mm-hmm. our parents do the best that they can to try to give us a better life, but we have to grow up really fast. We, absolutely. you know, we're, we're translators, you know, we're ambassadors. Mm-hmm. You know, we're representatives for our family, you know, and a lot of I wouldn't say a lot of pressure, but there's I mean, there's a lot of maturity when it comes to, you know, all of a sudden when you have your friends that just kind of have it less, um, not less responsibilities, but they feel that less pressure. Um, because right. the, the parents, you know, you, you can tell by the way, even, even now as an adult, you, you plan to have kids. Um, and then you see your other, you see other friends that already have kids. And some people are like, well, kids will be kids. Let, well, and then you, you kind of set the tone a little bit. Well, no, you, there's, there's a sense of responsibility and maturity that has to be at that certain age. Have you felt that growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand what you mean, especially with first generation. Right. Um, kids and compared to the non first generation kids or, uh, you know, many, many white kids that don't have to deal with the burden. And a lot of my friends and I who are also first generation or they themselves are immigrants, mm-hmm. um, have, you know, say that we have to parent our parents when right. we are, we ourselves are young. Exactly. Right. Like you said, like if, um, the doctor's office called, right. You, and it's like, can I talk to your mom? Can I talk to your dad? Whoever. Mm-hmm. You have to translate sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Or if a telemarketer calls, like, no, like, don't talk to the telemarketer mom or don't talk to the telemarketer dad. Like, they mm-hmm. don't, we don't, we shouldn't be talking to them. Um, we do have to grow up really fast because there's so many things that not only are our parents learning as they came to this country, but then we are teaching them because we're, we're, learning as well like you know kids are their brains are like they say like our brains are sponges when we're kids Mm -hmm. so we have to almost like teach our parents as we are being taught from like our teachers or whoever it is and i definitely you know felt like a lot of pressure and burden growing up too like you know there's a lot of these expectations from our parents saying you have to do well, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer, you have to be an engineer, right? Right. Of old immigrant parents saying, you're, you're, I want my kids to do a million times better than I did. And I gave them the opportunity to be in this country and grow up in this country. Right. So I definitely felt that a lot, especially in school. <laughs> um, my parents knew I wasn't really into science or engineering or, uh, you know, a lot of STEM stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, while I was growing up, my dad especially, he encouraged me a lot to get into the business end of work um, and the business end of, you know, going to university, whatever I picked as my major. You know, finally, I, I studied political science as my undergrad and my, my master's is in peace and conflict resolution. That's how I came to be in this activist world. I said, no, you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I want to do this for me and I know I'm going to be happy even though, you know, work in nonprofit and in the fact world is actually not easy, first of all, and it's not lucrative. And, you know, my dad and my mom were both like, you know what? She has a good head on her shoulders. We're going to support her and whatever she wants to do. 
So they were pretty, you know, they put a lot of pressure and burden on me, of course. But, you know, they also did, you know, at one point say, you know what? She's going to, you know, this is her passion. This is what she wants to do and we'll support her. So, uh, yes, stereotypical immigrant parents at first. <laughs> and then I was like, wow, wow, they're, um, they're supporting me. This is really great. So right. I'm really appreciative of that. But I definitely felt the burden and the guilt for a long time. And I still do. Mm. To be honest, I still do because I want to I want to be as good as what they want me to be. Right. Mm. So. There's, a, there's a lot of pressure, especially um, being yeah. the firstborn. Of, uh, exactly. Would you say that your father's uh, work influenced you the way that you approach uh, activism? Yes, I would say so. I I know that him and I talk a lot about politics and activism and what's going on. Um, I remember as a kid, um, we had like a lot of maps and globes in the house. Um, obviously, world maps, U.S. maps, and of course, um, map of Bangladesh. Yeah. Um, and I remember we'd have a little globe and sometimes what my dad and I would do is we would spin the globe and wherever our finger would land on, whatever country it was, or, you know, if it was the ocean, we'd still spin again. And we would t- either talk about that country if we knew anything about it, or we would, you know, look up information about that country. Wow. And since, right? And that's like such a, like a precious so awesome. memory, right? Like a precious little memory right. and moment that like kind of has inspired me since I was little. Um, we would always talk about politics and activism or whatever is going on in the, in the town or in the state or in the country. And throughout like my college and right now, you know, I've talked to my dad about whatever I'm doing. Um, he asked me how it works going and everything like that. I would say he definitely was a big influence. I, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's so refreshing to, to hear because I know that in, in other scenarios for first gen, we don't try to forget where our parents came from, but we try to adapt to this American lifestyle that let's just absorb everything America has to offer. You know, let's, let's get it. Let's become well-educated. Let's learn our history about America. This is who we are now. This is, this is who we want to become. And um, to hear parents, you know, I have scenarios where I know first gen Americans where their parents speak either Spanish or their native language, and they kind of the the first generation that were born here kind of slowly forget their language, or when they're approached by either if they're Hispanic, if they're approached by another Hispanic, they they won't uh, answer in Spanish or their parents' native language. Um, so to hear that you know we still have cultures and families that try to educate and and to become a well-rounded person is is uh admirable and refreshing to hear because we we must not forget where we came from our history because the roots of our culture and the essence you know of our history makes us who we are yes we are proud to be american absolutely but at the end of the day we must not forget the roots of our family and our history. Yep, absolutely. You know, and that's, yep. the, and the essence, that's the essence of what makes America so diverse and so great, truly great. Right, absolutely. I would say I'm a little bit guilty of the whole language thing mm-hmm. as a first generation, not completely embracing the language. I understand the language. My parents speak in Bing, uh, Bengali or Bangla and English to me, but I feel guilty. I'll I'll raise a hand <laughs> um, that I don't really speak the language back. Um, I think more that's a more psychological thing on my end than anything else. Um, but that is true. Like a lot of us, you know, Christians, we're super proud about being American. Right. We super embrace the culture here, right? But um, then a lot of us lose the culture of our parents and our ancestors, um, maybe maybe it's not necessarily purposely, but sometimes it is, or, you know, our parents even, not my parents, but people's parents might want to embrace American culture so much that they, you know, forget. Um, but I think it is really important to remember your culture, whatever aspect of the culture, right? right. And embrace it and not, 
you know, be afraid of showing it or be afraid of talking to people about it. Because like you said, that's what makes America what America is. And, you know, we need to have more outlets, whether it's social media or, you know, meeting people in person, of course, when COVID isn't a thing, but more outlets like this, like your show, to be able to talk about these things. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we, it's, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to make sure that we're satisfying, you know, the beliefs of our families, you know, back home and still not disconnect and still uphold and still uphold the responsibility of making sure that we're helping our parents transition while we're learning to adapt. Right. Do you, um, do you ever feel that the first generation guilt associated with not doing well in everything or being a giant success? Do I ever feel that? Yes. Do you ever feel the guilt um, of, of, of being a first gen and, and, you know, and you, you have to thrive, you have to be successful because your parents sacrifice everything to come to, to this wonderful country. And we want to make sure that, that yeah. you become either a lawyer or a doctor. And do you have a, an amount of pressure? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Like, yeah, like I said earlier, like, you know, in it, when I was growing up, I was not an academically inclined kid. I did all my work. I went to school. I had my friends. I showed up to class. I did everything. But I was not a straight A student. My parents, if you talk to my parents and ask them one thing to describe me, I was a social person. I'm a social butterfly. I was always hang, wanting to hang out with my friends after school, on the weekends. I still got all my stuff done, but I was never, like, the straight-A student that, you know, or a really good student that my parents wanted me to be. That was a big pressure growing up. I felt bad. You know, I always got my stuff done, but I always felt bad. Um, And I thought, you know, I really have to be good for my parents. I still feel that way. I still have guilt. Like, you know, I've gone through... Um, periods of time where I didn't have a job or I had to go and get like a like minimum wage retail job, which are absolutely amazing jobs, especially right now. We need to honor those people doing those jobs are on the front line. But like, I felt like a failure at those times when, you know, I wasn't the best student in school or I didn't have a sustainable job in my field or whatever it was. There was so much guilt. There was so much guilt because I kept thinking to myself, you know, yes, I need to like, you know, get better. But at the same time, like, I felt so bad because I'm like, I feel like I'm a burden to them. I feel like I'm not doing as well as they want me to do. And I felt, you know, bad. Um, Because like you said, like they sacrificed, our parents sacrificed so much to come here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I had that moment of I didn't have a job for a few months or I wasn't doing well in school or whatever, I felt guilty. Sometimes I wouldn't tell my parents that that was happening or I would wait so long to tell them. And it was like too much. Like I would become so emotional, you know, and it, it's a lot. For us. It's so much like we have to be at. So we ourselves, we have a high standard for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But then we have to think about our family and our parents and what they think about us. Right. Right. And so that's an even higher bar most of the time. So when you don't hit either of those bars, you yourself feel terrible. Then you have to think about what your family thinks. Right. So absolutely. Yep. I've felt that many times. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when I was younger, I had a little bit of resentment because I felt that they mm-hmm. wanted me to fulfill their dreams. And because yeah. they felt like they weren't young enough to accomplish those dreams, they put that pressure on me to become um a successful doctor or whatever they wanted to pursue um and i just had to kind of sit down with them and say listen um this is not what i want to do with my life you know i'm i'm more i'm like you i'm i'm a social butterfly you know i i like to connect with people i like to i like to be involved and when i i noticed that i was instead of becoming a lawyer I wanted to work on my artistry you know and and truly find myself within my art you know and it's it's hard for 
parents to understand first to understand that coming from a background where they've sacrificed everything and they didn't have that luxury. So at at that time, it, sometimes it can become a little they can become a little resentful as well because they're like, well, you're wasting, you're wasting the opportunity, you know? And until they understood that this is part of the American dream of you can become anyone you want to be and you can still be successful if you apply yourself to it. Oh yeah. I've had many of those discussions too. Those right. same ones. Like, hey, this is like towards the end of college. Like I said, like, Hey, this is what I want to do. Right. And it's going to make me happy, right? And, like, I know that I also want you to be happy, mom and dad. But, like, this is going to make me happy and this is where I want to take my life. Please support me, right? Right. So, you feel, and you feel awkward having that conversation. You feel guilty. I'm not sure about you. Exactly. I'm not sure about you, but you feel so guilty because... Like, you want to fulfill them, their mm-hmm. happiness. You want to be happy, too. You don't want to just do what they mm-hmm. want you to do. Sure, maybe you do, maybe you do have an aspiration to be a mm-hmm. lawyer. I'm thinking about it. Maybe you do want to be an engineer. Right. That's great. Like, we need more first-gen and people of color being in those high positions, of course. But, right. like, you need to do what you want, to, what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I think, hopefully, <laughs> at the end of the day, if you're happy and healthy and you're okay... Hopefully your parents will be okay with that. You know, hopefully. (laughs) As long as you're, as long as you're connecting with your community, you're being productive and a positive member within your society and, and being involved instead of just kind of, there's, there's also the other aspect of, you know, the American dream of putting your head down, minding your business, not getting involved, staying under the radar. There's a lot of people in, that are not in your position and that you can ask, actually risk their sacrifice by being too loud, you know, or, you know, or getting too much involved. It kind of just, I've, I've, I've had it both. I've been in both sides of the spectrum, right. so I get it. But right. at the end of the day, like, we have the nurturing feeling and upbringing that at the end of the day, we always come back and take care of the people that that sacrifice everything for us. And that's that's who we are. That's in our nature. It doesn't matter what nationality you, you come from. You understand the dynamic. You understand the sacrifice. And obviously, if you don't fulfill their dream and, and they're supportive of you fulfilling yours, you always come back to thank them for that and take care of your, your, your own. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... You know, obviously, a lot of us immigrant or first generation kids want to fulfill their dreams as well as ours. And what you were talking about, like, don't be too loud, put your head down. I think right. one of the biggest populations that's affected by that are undocumented kids. Exactly. Right. Exactly. They they can't be loud because, hey, mm-hmm. uh, you might get kicked out of here. Your parents might get kicked out of here. Or there are stereotypes with many, many different ethnicities and cultures and races where mm-hmm. like black women don't be la- what that black woman being loud right yeah. why is she being so mm-hmm. why is that latina woman being so loud like mm-hmm. she needs to calm down right. right like but you have to be you like you have to do you and do like what makes you happy and right. if you want to be loud be loud don't water yourself and down do for nobody also, right and i do want to also mention you know like Yes, we are really hardworking and we do a lot of, you know, we are involved in the community and, Mm -hmm. you know, being on shows like yours. But there are, you know, one of the biggest issues with immigrant or first generation kids or like people of color, that's, you know, mental health um, is a big thing that's a taboo in many of our cultures. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. That is a huge taboo that I had to deal with with my parents. Since I was a teenager. Right. And even if you aren't successful or if you're not involved in the community or if that's what you're dealing with, if you're dealing with your health and your mental wellness, you need to deal with that no matter what culture you're from. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) That's something that I think we have a disconnect with our, I don't know about your family, but Mm -hmm. like I have a disconnect with that with my family and many immigrant and first generation kids have a disconnect. So definitely I encourage, I'm a big mental health, self-care advocate especially for us brown kids right so absolutely not until i was an adult 
that I started to dig in more of, of self-evaluating and, and seeking for help or seeking for guidance to somebody to talk to, uh, seeking uh, professional help. Um, to be able to kind of discuss the the differences of of how I'm feeling and what I'm going through. And because for parents, it might be, no, not my child, not my, my child can't be going through that. You know, we, I suppressed that anxiety because if I highlighted or spotlighted that anxiety, we wouldn't be here because the anxiety of what about if we don't make it on the other side or what, like I said, we had to grow up really fast because our parents didn't feel those feelings. And if they did, they suppressed them because they had a, they were tunnel vision for that American dream. Right. So now that we're comfortable and we're here and they said, okay, we made it. Now our family has new roots and, and new, and new uh, beginnings. Now I understand uh, the dynamic and they will, they will survive because they're here. But again, we're translators, we're ambassadors, we're representatives for our family. Hey, what does this letter say? Can you translate that for me? Is everything all right? Um, what about it? Am I going to get shut off? Is the bill, is, is the payments okay? Like, I don't understand. I thought that this is how it works. And we're, and we're trying to figure out while we're kids and becoming young adults. And at the same time, we're missing the dynamic of the structure. We have the dynamic as family members. And how do you raise a family? You provide for a family, but we we disconnect from that structure of how to just find ourselves and center ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Now, I know that you do a lot of work with domestic violence awareness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I can give a little bit of outline of um, my background in that and where I am now. So... I, um, when I was in my master's degree, I actually had a, got a certificate um, from UMass School in domestic violence prevention. Um, that was something that I've always been interested in, um, gender-based violence prevention. Um, a few years ago, I worked at a crisis center in Lowell. Um, that one was specifically for helping folks um, who have uh, dealt with sexual violence. Um, right now, I work at Bridges in Nashua. And I know I'm going to get into a little bit more about it later, of course, but um, that is an organization in Nashua. We help folks in the greater Nashua and Milford area um, who have dealt with domestic and sexual violence. Um, I would say I've been doing this work, let's see, (laughs) um, in various different capacities, probably for the last six, five, six years. and my, my hope and my dream is to one day, you know, work in our nation's capital or somewhere around the world and help especially immigrants and refugees when it comes to dealing with gender-based violence. Um, my, I would say my passion when it comes to this was um, directly influenced from when I, I interned at International Institute in Lowell, which is a refugee resettlement organization. Um, back in, when was that, 2015, and um, I learned about how many of the refugees, for example, from Eastern Africa, like Congo, Kenya, Uganda, Sudan, those areas, um, they dealt obviously with a lot of war, and um, a lot of the people there um, had to deal, unfortunately, with gender-based violence as a tool of war. So that is something that kind of instilled my passion for this work. Um, And now I work at Bridges. So um, I am one of two cultural advocates. I'm a cultural outreach advocate. Um, Two of us, the whole state of New Hampshire, identifies cultural advocates in our respective um, crisis centers that we work at. So me and another colleague um, from uh, the YWCA in Manchester, um, do this specific work. So it's pretty wild that we're the only two that have this specific Yeah, I was about, um, yeah, I was about <laughs> to ask that. I mean, in the whole state, I mean, we have at least 20 different cultures within, let alone in our city. And I can't believe that there's only two cultural representatives within the whole state. Yeah. Yep. Within this work, specifically the domestic and sexual violence work. Wow. Um, I think the reasoning a little bit <laughs> behind it is because Nashville and Manchester are the two biggest cities, obviously, in right. New Hampshire and hold the most 
amount of people of color and immigrants and refugees. Um, obviously, there are they live in other places in New Hampshire, of course, but we're the biggest cities. Um, yeah, I don't think it's enough. Um, I have talked to that colleague many times, and um, we, we we have a lot of work to do, but it's just the two of us. Absolutely. So in a, in a situation, let's say, uh, let's say that there's a gentleman that's American, an American citizen. He brings a, he brings his wife over from a different country and he's a, he's in a position of power, you know, because he's an American citizen and she basically, he has the upper hand because if he doesn't, if she doesn't say what he thought, if she doesn't, do what he says or anything like that. And she's scared because he could be a little physical. How, uh, how do you guys reach out to individuals that don't have papers that are, that want to stay under the radar, but they're going through some, some traumatic, um, this, they're going through some traumatic events at home. Right. How Absolutely. do you, how do you connect with that individual? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned something really interesting. Um, that is a big, as far as any of our, um, any of our clients, any of our survivors, um, who themselves, they themselves identify as an immigrant, but their partner or their husband or their spouse are a U.S. citizen. That is actually a really big tool of abuse. The, um, the spouse or the abuser will say, Hey, if you don't do what I say to do, I'm going to tell them you're illegal or undocumented or right. Or, um, they're usually the U S citizen is usually the sponsor right. for a marriage. If right. they're not married yet. Oh, um, yeah, I'm going to, you know, tell them that this is a fake marriage wow. or we don't really, we, we don't really love each other. That is a tactic of abuse, um, a psychological and really scary tactic of abuse. Yeah. Um, how we, you know, reach out to these communities, you know, we have really good partnerships with different organizations that work with immigrants and refugees. Um, once, for example, like Catholic Charities is a good organization that helps, especially um, um, attorneys that help these folks, this particular, you know, population, um, churches, houses of worship, synagogues, mosques, um, different organizations. We also in-house, um, we have a language line where we can, um, if they do come to us and have low English um, knowledge or no English knowledge, we can get on the phone with a um, translator um, of hundreds of different languages and be able to speak to the client um, that way. Yeah. Um, we have many of my colleagues, my advocates have multilingual um, capabilities, so they can speak to them as well. Um, and, you know, the biggest thing for us is we really help them where they're at, whatever they need. Like, say, for an example, that is something that they need help with, immigration. Right. We will connect them with these with these lawyers. We will help them if that's what they want, right? We come with a mindset of empowerment. That's something that the empowerment model If We'll give the survivor, whoever they are, with if they're an immigrant or not, right. options. And they can say, nope, I'm not going to do that. Or, yes, I need help with that. Can you please help me with that? And if they, for example, say, no, I don't really need your help, well, that's fine. We will always be here. You can call us, um, email us, go on our website, whatever it is. We'll still be here for you, and we won't judge you. You, you so, know, but that, go ahead, sorry. No, yeah, no, I was done. <laughs> so, you know where I see the problem with that is, you know, with the um, translator um, over yeah. the phone is that you're in a different country. You are, you're uh, again, mm-hmm. you don't know anybody. You're uncomfortable already. The only person that you trust is your abuser, whether it's physical yep. or, or mental. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you're seeking out for help and right. you have to do it. And a, with a translator over the phone, which there's no human to human interaction or, or warmth or, approach if you will because even if in situations where if you've ever worked in a hospitality retail what have you you know um if you ever looked at some if you ever looked at somebody that steps into the store or the room 
and they're yeah. looking around for a familiar face and then all of yeah. a sudden they you they find somebody that kind of similarly looks like you they're automatically engaged with you and open up i can't right. imagine i can't imagine a woman that's going through some trauma or or, or a man that's going through some trauma and and try to connect over the phone and not knowing what's happening next without that reassuring. And I feel that there's a little bit of an opportunity there, if you will. Yeah. So I, I understand what you mean. Um, obviously meeting or being with someone in person, there's a lot more connection that way. Right. And obviously now with COVID that makes it even worse yeah. on top of you being gotcha. a new person, mm-hmm. American, an mm-hmm. immigrant, a person of color, you don't know the language or the culture. Right. When we meet with clients, we, and say, for example, they do need a translator. Mm-hmm. I mean, Right now, we are still meeting with clients. We're meeting at like kind of a limited basis. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do social distancing and wearing masks, but we are, you know, we will be in the room with the client and the translator. It's not just the two of them alone. And we also have confidentiality. Um, us as advocates have confidentiality. So, for example, whatever says in the room is said in the room stays in the room. Right. And you know, no one else will know unless we get written permission from that client, from that survivor that, yes, you can talk to such and such about my situation. Yes, you can talk to this person about my situation. And, uh, you know, we are very thankful for these translators, too, on their end, because sometimes this is a lot of hard information to take in on their end. Um, and, you know, the translators and the um, folks, even in person, too, um for example, like at the courts or the police stations or wherever we meet, you know, our clients, it, it's a really tough job. It's a really tough job. And, you know, on top of being a translator, like, again, like you're saying, like, these clients, these survivors probably don't know a lot of people, you know, yeah. their, their abusers are isolating them. Um, so we try our best to, you know, be culturally um, competent, know that we don't know it all um, and that they know their situation the best and however they want to be accommodated, we will be there for them. What, are, what is um, what is Bridges doing to um, reach out to more representatives to have a little bit more of diversity, um, especially with social distancing and COVID going on right now? Um, yeah, so reaching out to, to the actual survivors or, like, you know, other community members or both. Or both. Uh, we're both. Both, yeah, sure. So, uh, it's yep, it's been hard <laughs> to meet in person. Right now, you know, we're still meeting at, like, um, kind of limited capacity. But I know with my outreach work, I've been recently outreaching to um, the synagogue, mosque, um, different um, activist organizations. We've still been kind of um, connected via like Zoom and mm-hmm. phone meetings. And these are the types of organizations that are here to advocate for these communities. So like, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, there's an organization called Granite State Organizing Project that I'm pretty close to um, and recently got onto the board for the Nashua chapter. And for example, there is a housing project um, in Nashua where they're going to be rebuilding this housing project. Um, the Bronstein Project, some folks who are local might know about this. And there are two huge, two of the biggest communities there are Swahili-speaking folks from Africa mm-hmm. and then Spanish-speaking folks. And we have done a lot of work um, knocking on doors, for example, to um, let them know what's going on in their language. Or we'll translate paperwork in, like, flyers and stuff in their language so they know what's going on. Um we are hoping that they will, I mean, they're, they're supposed to get, you know, when the construction starts, they're supposed to get temporary housing somewhere else. But we're hoping that, you know, we can advocate for them. Um, and these are the types of organizations that um, I work with pretty closely that have a close connection with, you know, underserved populations. Um, as far as reaching out to the survivors, um, we do a lot of outreach in different parts. Um, of the city to these organizations and say, hey, like, for example, uh, another thing, I have, like, a connection with the UU Church, and if they uh, say, hey, like, if you have any folks 
who need our assistance, let them know, and they can call us at any time. And then we, there will be an advocate on the other on on the other line, being able to be here and help you. Do you need immigration help? And you have been a survivor of domestic violence. We can connect you to people. Um, it has been hard with COVID because people. I mean, for a while, most of us were working from home. Um, we were only allowing a certain amount of people in the office aside from staff and obviously masks and everything. And we've been cleaning a lot too. So that, you know, like I said earlier, is another barrier for these folks, for the immigrants and folks with low English that, you know, they first, you know, are trying to get a hold of the culture and the language. And then, oh, this crazy pandemic happened. So we're trying to meet everyone where they're at at this point. Truly amazing uh, work, what you're doing. It's really impressive and uh, eye-opening. Can you talk about some of the stat, uh, the statistics on domestic violence on both men and women, if you have any here in the state? Yeah, sure. Um, I can like say a little bit of national and then some little bit of New Hampshire too. So national, um, so one in four women and one in 10 men experience um, sexual violence, physical violence, or stalking from an intimate partner. That's national. Um, and then New Hampshire, um, it's pretty in line, but I would say a little um, more prevalent, unfortunately, in New Hampshire. So um, one in three women in New Hampshire experience intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And then one in four men in New Hampshire have reported physical violence from an intimate partner. Again, uh, it, it is a little bit more prevalent in New Hampshire but however, even the national and the New Hampshire statistics, you kind of have to think domestic violence and sexual violence is an incredibly underreported crime, mm. as it is. So these statistics, sure, um, pretty prevalent, but if, and especially for men, I would say, are even more underreported because there's a stigma of men in this particular kind of crime or situation not wanting to report um because of the stigma of being a man, being tough, right. being not. Um, I can't believe something like this would happen to me. Um, more so, and I can get into this a little bit more too, um, if they are um, LGBTQ. This doesn't happen in our in our community. Right. Or if they're an immigrant themselves. This doesn't happen to me. I'm supposed to be the breadwinner. I'm supposed to be the, the head of the household right. in my family. Mm-hmm. So that's especially for men, I would say, and also some national things. Um, immigrant women and girls are two times more likely to experience domestic violence and then um, as opposed to non-immigrant. And then LGBTQ people are also two times more likely to experience domestic violence than non-LGBTQ people or cisgender or heterosexual people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this is all national um, statistics. And then trans women of color are at the highest risk of death when it comes to domestic violence and if you think about it why is the reasoning behind all of these statistics especially for the underserved folks they are dealing they might deal with domestic violence in their home but then they might deal with violence and um racism or homophobia or violence outside of the home too um they might have less uh, opportunities to gain services they might have less opportunities to seek help in the way that they would like to receive help. Um, immigrant women and LGBTQ folks already come with other traumas other than domestic violence. Maybe when you came out to your parents, you got kicked out of your house. Maybe coming over as an immigrant from whatever country, you dealt with violence from your country. It, they're already dealing with so much more trauma and yeah. then they come here and if they deal with domestic violence, that's even more trauma and they're more susceptible, unfortunately, to that, to domestic violence. Well, it's a, especially when you're transitioning to a new country and even if your partner or your husband or your wife was the abuser back home and then you're transitioned with more pressure of trying to adapt and trying to find a job and not having the the papers, the right papers to su- survive or not having the outlet to find medical attention. There's a lot of pressure to to transition and adapt. So if if you were coming, uh, if you were coming from your native country and transitioning to America, 
the the mental health and the the oppression and the the stress is a little bit more intense. How can somebody that's going through you know domestic violence, whether it's a male, female, um, how can somebody reach out? What are the first steps that they have to do? That you yeah, recommend? So, absolutely. For us at Bridges, so we do um, help clients, survivors of all identities, um, men, women, um, people of color, immigrants, LGBTQ people with disabilities, um, children. Um, we help everyone. Um, and the way, the best ways to be able to contact us, um, we have a website, bridgesnh.org. Um, there actually is an online chat feature there. Um, during COVID, we realized that that was a really big help. Um, that online chat is available 8.30 to 4.30, which are our office hours, mm-hmm. Monday through Friday. Um, and we have a 24-hour support line that you can call 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, even on holidays, and someone will be there. An advocate will be there on the other line. Um, that um, if I can, I guess I could, if I can give the numbers now, Absolutely. Um, that 24 hour, yeah, that 24 hour support line is 603-883-3044. Um, our Nashua office main phone number, which you can also call, but that's only open 830 to 430 Monday through Friday. The Nashua office is 603-889-0858. And then we actually also have the office in Milford, and that number is 603-672-9833. And, we'll, and then, okay. yes, <laughs> And we'll be posting all this information for the listeners as well um, on the link in the bio, as well as on the post on First Gen American. Uh, Famina, what are you, so with COVID going on, what are you guys doing to kind of... Um, help any any victims out there right now yeah so we're still you know our office is still open um many of the things that we do um you know you can come into our office anytime um we ask for appointments but you actually don't need to have one um and we also meet folks at the court um police station and um we go on hospital calls as well um and yeah, you can call us at any time, um, Monday through Friday. You can go on our you call our support line, go on our website, and then you can also um, reach us at our social media. We have Facebook and Instagram. We have Twitter, not as active on Twitter, but Facebook and Instagram definitely pretty active. Um, we are, um, you know, trying to social distance. We're cleaning our office as much as we can, wearing masks. Um, we're still meeting folks where they're at. Perfect. Famina, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your background, your experience, and the amazing work that you're doing uh, for domestic violence victims. I want to thank you for sharing uh, your, your story out to our public and educating us on domestic violence. Thank you so much for joining us today, Famina. I appreciate you, and uh, we'll hear back from you soon. <laughs>